one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is teaching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Leviticus chapter 17, verses 10 and 11. If any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Luke five twenty through 26. <clears throat> And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts, which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from, from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. 
More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let me pray briefly for the preaching of God's word. Heavenly Father, I do ask now that you would uh, fill me with your spirit, Lord. Help me to, to preach your word rightly and help the, the beauty and the force of this text to uh, land on us, Lord, that it would cause us to indeed um, abandon all of our sins and to turn to you in joy. Um, Father, I need your help now, and all those listening need your help that they might trust in you fully. And so we ask for that help now, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, beloved, we're going to be spending this week and Easter morning on this text. It's just extremely appropriate for uh, both what we think of during this Holy Week and for what we think of of Easter morning. In some ways, this picture of this woman who comes to Jesus and receives his mercy and forgiveness really epitomizes for us why Jesus came, what he came to do, what he's doing in each of our lives. And so we want to camp out here for just a couple weeks to see the fullness and the richness of what Christ is communicating to this woman. And what I would like to focus on this morning in particular is how Jesus grants forgiveness to this woman. He grants her forgiveness. We see that in verse 48 toward the end of the text. It says, And he, that is Jesus, said to her, Your sins are forgiven. And again, as we read from Luke chapter 5, this is not the first person that Jesus has spoken to and told him that your sins are forgiven. And so I just want to take this morning to consider what does it really mean that our sins are forgiven? What does it take for our sins to be forgiven? This is something that we can easily take for granted, beloved. I know it's something that I myself take for granted all too often, that we have forgiveness from Jesus Christ. And yet so often we don't consider exactly what that forgiveness means. We don't consider what that forgiveness costs. And so again, especially as we look at the events of this week, especially as we consider Christ and his torture and his going to the cross, it should remind us of the great cost of forgiveness. And it should remind us of the effectiveness of forgiveness that Christ has won for us. So that's where we're going this morning. Why do we need forgiveness and how is this forgiveness offered? Now, beloved, we all, as human beings, need forgiveness. And when I say need, I am not overstating my point. We do not simply desire forgiveness. Forgiveness is not simply something that would be nice to have. Forgiveness is not simply something that we want and we can be happy when we get it. No, forgiveness is a need as much as sleep is a need, as much as food and water is a need, as much as shelter is a need. Forgiveness is a need, beloved. And for many of us who have lived relatively stable and happy lives, we may not notice this need very greatly. But for others who have been sinned against greatly or who have sinned greatly, the need for forgiveness can often be palpable. Beloved, there are men and women around us, probably even in this neighborhood this morning, who are active in self-harm or who are contemplating suicide. 
And I tell you that they do this in large part because of the weight of sin. Because of the weight of shame upon their lives. Because of something terrible that has happened to them or something terrible that they have done. And they have this feeling that they cannot even live with themselves. They know the need for forgiveness, even if they do not know the answer, even if they would not call it a need for forgiveness. Often our world twists this need for forgiveness into a need for self-esteem. And so oftentimes people who are in the agony of unforgiven sin will simply be told that they just need to think better thoughts of themselves that they need to stop punishing themselves. And of course, it's true that they need to think better thoughts and they need to stop punishing. But there's only one way that these things can come about, and that is through real forgiveness. Again, forgiveness is a need as real as a need for food, as a need for sleep. Perhaps some of you here this morning even have this deep sense of shame or guilt And you know how desperately you have cried out to God for forgiveness. And beloved, ultimately, all of us should know this sort of shame. In a strong sense, it is very right for each one of us human beings to have a deep sense of shame. Scripture tells us in the very well-known verse of Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. That means we all ought to have shame. And yet, what is sin? Yes, we know that sin is lying or stealing or hating. It's breaking God's law. That surely is what sin is. And yet, Scripture also reveals to us on a deeper level what sin is and why it is so shameful. I think Probably the the metaphor that scripture uses for sin that most provokes this feeling of shame in my own heart, that most reveals to me what sin really is, is the metaphor of adultery. Scripture tells us that all sin is nothing less than adultery. Now, there are many very graphic passages in scripture that you could go to to see this reality, but consider this one passage from the prophet Jeremiah. This is Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 6 to 14. Jeremiah says, The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one, Israel? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and there played the whore. And I thought, after she had done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree, and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. 
Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. So, beloved, do you hear in this text how God himself identifies himself as Israel's husband, as Israel's spouse, and not just a spouse that somehow lords over his wife, who is a bad spouse, who is an abusive spouse, but no, he is one who loves his wife, who entreats her to return to him, who even though she has been faithless, he says, I still want you back. I still want you as my wife. And yet, do you see what Israel and what Judah did again and again? They committed adultery against God, this one who loves them with an everlasting love. They decided, no, I'm going to turn my own way. I'm going to follow my own wisdom. I'm going to pursue my own pleasures. And because of this, God calls them adulterers. You see, beloved, when we sin against God, we are not merely doing the wrong thing. We are not merely breaking some law or command or instruction or good advice. We are not merely doing something that's not in our best interest. Of course, it's true that sin is all these things. But beloved, most fundamentally, what sin is, is it is adultery against a good and a loving God. Every command that God gives to us is for our good, and it's so that we would be able to draw near to him. And yet we spurn him again and again and again for the things of this world. Even in this passage in Jeremiah, we see that God is a good husband to us. That he wants our good, that he cares for us, and that even when we sin against him, he will have mercy and he will welcome us back. And yet time after time, we turn our hearts away from him. We turn our eyes to something else or to someone else. And we reject our first love, the husband of our youth. Scripture doesn't tell us who this woman is who came to Jesus, who wept over his feet and who anointed him with perfume and who wiped his feet with her hair. And yet, we know that she was aware of her sin. Anyone who has not come to know the mercy of Christ would certainly call this woman crazy for doing such a thing. We would ask her the question, what what has Jesus possibly given to you that would be worth so much? What could Jesus possibly offer to you that you would make such a fool of yourself to come and to weep over his feet and to wipe his feet with your hair? And her answer is quite simple, I believe. He offers forgiveness. He offers mercy. Beloved, all we're told about this woman in Scripture is that she is an immoral woman. Now, obviously, this could span a very broad category of sins. But most often, when a woman is called an immoral woman, it means that she has committed sexual immorality in some way. And so this woman, in all likelihood, has committed adultery. Perhaps she has even committed prostitution at some point. And in the context of 
this time in history in the ancient Near East, we can also be assured that she has had terrible things done to her. That her sin is not merely something that she has undertaken out of some wicked and sinful heart, but she has also been sinned against greatly, I am sure, by abusive and evil men. She has a deep sense of her guilt before the Lord. She has a deep sense of shame, of uncleanness. Perhaps she was someone who would often try to harm herself as a way of getting out from under this load of sin, as a way to propitiate the wrong things that she had done. She knew that she needed forgiveness. But what is forgiveness, beloved? What is so significant about it? What, why is forgiveness so great that when this woman receives it, it would cause her to flee to this Messiah and weep over him and bless him and thank him? Why is it that forgiveness should so transform our lives? Why do we as humans, if we are awake to our sin, crave forgiveness in such a deep and intractable way? Now, when I talk about what forgiveness is, I do want to focus specifically on what the forgiveness of God is instead of the forgiveness one to another. They're connected, obviously, but God can forgive us in a way that no human being can. And so let me just focus in these coming minutes on the forgiveness that God himself offers. I want you to imagine for a moment that our sins are not merely actions that we performed and that are over and done with in some time past. And I want you to imagine that the guilt and the shame that we feel over such sin is not merely a feeling that we have, but imagine that both of these things were actually physical objects. Imagine that whenever you committed a sin, a box would suddenly appear in your hands. Perhaps it's a small sin, and when you commit that sin, some small box appears in your hands, and it still has some weight and heft to it, but it's fairly small, and you think you can carry it. Or perhaps it's a very great sin, something very grievous you have done, and it is a very large box that you can scarcely even hold on your back. A box that is capable of crushing you were you to turn it the wrong way. Now, beloved, if we could imagine such a world, then all of us, every last human being on earth, would have boxes enough to fill up our homes to fill up our yards, to fill up the streets that we live on. We would have burdens beyond measure. We would have no hope of ever clearing them away. Now I said that we can imagine sin to be like this physical object, but in reality, I don't think we even need to stretch our imaginations very very much to conceive of this. Because even though our sins are not physical boxes that appear in our hands, again, we nevertheless feel the weight of them every single day. Beloved, if you are here this morning and you have never felt the weight of your sin, then I pray that you would feel it this morning. Because the weight is real and this weight is growing every day. Now, I would love to to get philosophical and explain why we as humans feel such a weight in connection with sin. Because I believe that this weight of sin goes to the very deepest aspects of who we are as image bearers of God. And it goes to the very deepest realities of creation itself that was created to show God's grandeur. 
But again, I think that whether we see the depth and the horror of sin or not, we still all feel it in some way. It is a reality that is presented to our hearts even before it could be presented to our minds. There's this great and remarkable scene from the, from the show ER that shows a man who is about to die and he had this weight of committing a murder on his conscience. Now the show shows a, a young chaplain coming to speak with him and trying to give him peace and encourage him. In so many words, she was trying to encourage this man who had the weight of murder on his conscience. She was trying to say, you know, forgive yourself. Don't be so hard on yourself. And yet, to this, the man replied in rage that she did not understand what murder was. And she did not understand the weight that his conscience felt. And that she did not understand what forgiveness means. Beloved, this is how we all feel when we have moments of clarity about what our sin really is. That it's not something that we can just make go away by thinking better thoughts of ourselves. It's not something that we can just ignore and it will go away in time and it's no big deal. You see, there really is a weight to our sins. And even if it is not the weight of a physical box, of a physical object... It is a weight. Nevertheless, it is a weight to our souls. It is a weight to our hearts, to our emotions. There is a weight to things like guilt and shame. And people that have truly experienced the depth of their sin know these weights. And they know that they are more severe than any physical weights that we could ever be given. It might surprise you, beloved, to know that Scripture actually encourages us at many different times to feel the weight of our sin. Even in the New Testament, here's James 4, verses 8 to 10. It says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now, how do we do that? How do we draw near to God? It says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. You see, so often, beloved, the world wants to tell us to just be happy. Don't worry about anything. If you're sad, then you need to turn that around. If you're mourning, then you need to stop. And yet the word of Scripture to us is that we ought to mourn and weep. We ought to really know the weight of our sin. And if we do not know the weight, it's not because the weight is not there. It's just because we are blind and we are ignoring it. And so, beloved, have you done that? When was the last time that you have been there, that you have truly mourned over your sin, that it has truly broken your heart? Do you know, have you ever felt that you are an adulterer before God? Do you know the shame of your sin? Do you cry out for forgiveness? And so what is forgiveness? Forgiveness, beloved, is the removal of this weight. It is saying that all of these boxes that could fill our homes and yards and streets, that these boxes have all disappeared, that they are all gone. 
It is saying that our innocence is restored, that we are perfect and clean in God's sight. Beloved, I want to say a word to you too, to those of you who perhaps have been sinned against, maybe even more greatly than you yourself have sinned. And so you feel that the stain of sin, even though it's not something that you yourself have committed, you still feel stained because someone else has committed a, a great sin against you. This offer of forgiveness is also an offer of cleansing from all of those sins as well, beloved. That when Jesus washes you clean, that you are clean indeed. Whether it is a deed that came from your own evil doing or whether it's some deed that came against you through no fault of your own, Christ can make you clean from all of these iniquities, from all of these sins. And so, beloved, this is how deep the purity goes that is offered in Jesus Christ. That we do not need to feel any more shame. Whether it was shame of something done to us, whether it's shame of something we ourselves have done, the forgiveness that is offered in Jesus Christ is a perfect cleansing. But of course, this does raise the question, given all I've said about the iniquity of sin, given the real, not imaginary weight of sin, it raises the huge question of how could God forgive, right? How could God simply make all these boxes disappear? Simply say to us who are really guilty and really have a weight, how could God say to us, you are innocent and you are free? It seems to not be possible. It's like a magician who has a huge elephant on the stage and suddenly he waves a cape and the elephant is gone. It just defies the laws of physics. It defies the economy of the world that our shame and our guilt could be taken away. But beloved, here is where Scripture understands the moral reality of our universe better than any other book ever written. As we read this morning in Leviticus chapter 17, this is verse 11. It says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it For you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. In other words, there is a way to wash out the stench and the evil of sin. But the only way to do that is through blood. It's through the offering of a life on the altar. You see, our sins cannot be washed away with mere hand soap. It cannot be done even with strong dishwashing soap or laundry detergent. It cannot be done with any kind of scouring or scrubbing. Not even the kind where we get engaged in self-harm and cutting ourselves. This is not able to take away the stain of sin. Beloved, not even a thousand good works in return for some wrongdoing can wash away this stain. It is indelible, and there is only one thing ultimately that washes away sin, and that is your death. If you are killed for your sin, then you have received the only effective consequence. And yet, The difficulty, obviously, in that case is that being dead, you do not know forgiveness. Your life has been taken in the atonement for the sin. 
And so, beloved, all this prepares us to simply understand why Christ Jesus had to come and die. Why his own blood had to be shed upon the cross. Because there is simply no way for God, who is a just and a holy and a righteous God, to snap his fingers and say, your sin is gone away. It has disappeared. No, God himself, by his word, says that the only way to make atonement for sin is by blood on the altar. So this is why, beloved, Christ came and why even in Christ's coming, he knew that he would have to die. It is why even in his words to this woman, when he says to her, your sins are forgiven, he knew that a price had to be paid for those sins. That even Christ himself was not able to simply say, you're forgiven, it's okay, no payment required. The sin is real. The weight of the sin is real. And therefore, Jesus had to die and shed his blood in order for our forgiveness to be won. And again, this is what we read in Romans chapter 5 this morning. It says, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then here, verse 9, it says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. Beloved, his blood was shed, and this blood itself is what assures us of our forgiveness before God. Again, it is not simply that God promised to forgive us. It is not simply that we know God is merciful, merciful, although we know these things. Beloved, ultimately there is only one thing that tells us, that tells our consciences that we have been forgiven. That we are free from our shame of adultery. That Christ's blood has been shed. And because his blood has been shed, we are now free. Again, verse 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And beloved, what does this rejoicing look like? This rejoicing in reconciliation? What it looks like is precisely what this woman did in Luke chapter 7. When she came to Jesus and she wept, over his feet, and she wiped his feet with her hair, and she anointed him with ointment. This is what it looks like, beloved, when we understand that our sins have been forgiven. And yet, beloved, there is a mystery in this text that even though we see how joyful this woman is over the forgiveness of her sins, and we see 
That there is mercy offered in Jesus Christ. And again, as I've just said, we see that all mankind needs this mercy. There is a mystery. And that is that there was another person present at this meal with Jesus who is no less a sinner than this woman was. And he seems oblivious to his need for forgiveness. He seems to think that he is good enough. So look with me at verse 36. Luke 7. It says, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and, recli- <clears throat> excuse me, and reclined at table. <clears throat> and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now the Pharisee who had invited him saw this. He said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her feet, or wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were sitting at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go. In peace. Beloved, do you see how Jesus compares the actions of this woman to the actions of the Pharisee? From my understanding and by all accounts, it was simply common courtesy when you would enter into someone's house in those days that they would indeed offer to wash your feet, that you would be greeted with a kiss on your cheek, or if you saw yourself as an inferior, then you would merely kiss their hand. And again, if it was a highly exalted guest, you would even anoint their head with oil when they came into your house. And yet we see that Simon invites Jesus in, and he does none of these things for Jesus. And this is an enormous contrast even to the centurion, to the Gentile centurion that we saw just earlier in this chapter who said, Jesus, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus is amazed at his faith. And yet Simon, apparently, thinks that not only is he worthy to have Jesus come under his roof, but he's worthy to have Jesus come under his roof and to offer him no cleansing, no kiss, no oil. And yet there is this woman who Simon 
would dare to call a sinner who comes into Simon's house and she creates water out of her own tears in order to wash Jesus' feet. That she offers Jesus oil and ointment out of her own meager means in order to anoint Jesus with oil. Beloved, she understands what it means to be a great sinner. As Jesus himself says in verse 47, I tell you her sins which are many are forgiven for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. So, beloved, the challenge for us this morning is simply, do you see yourself more like this sinful woman in need of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ? Or do you see yourself more in the role of this Pharisee Simon who's happy to let Jesus come into your home? You're happy to let him be a visitor, but you don't think you need to pay him any homage? You don't think you have anything to give him thanks for? Beloved, my heart's desire for all of us is that we would understand ourselves to be in the position of this immoral woman. We would all understand that we are adulterers against a good and a loving God. That we would understand the vast weight of sin that has been forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that because we understand that, we would be so eager to serve Jesus that we would even crawl into someone's home and be willing to wash his feet with our hair and to give him every last bit of money we have in order to anoint his head with oil. Beloved, how do you know if you've truly been forgiven by this great God? Simply ask yourself, have you ever felt this sort of gratitude, this sort of appreciation for what he has done? Beloved, if you've never felt this sort of love or affection toward Jesus, then I would contend that you have never known his mercy or forgiveness. Because as soon as you know his mercy and forgiveness, then your heart cannot help but respond with this sort of love and overflow of joy in the mercy that he has granted you. So, beloved, let me encourage you this morning to do away with all of your pride. Do away with any sort of sense of self-satisfaction you have that you are good enough, that you have no great need of forgiveness, that Jesus can be your guest or your friend, but he will not be your master, your Lord. And admit that you are a wicked adulterer before him. Again, in the words of James, mourn and weep before him. Because, beloved, as James says, if you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, then he will exalt you. You will also hear these words that Jesus spoke to the woman. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And beloved, if we hear those words, if we know the forgiveness of all of our sins by the blood of Jesus, then beloved, we should also understand that there is no greater burden in life that could be lifted, that there is no greater reward that we could be given. 
that there is nothing else that we could possibly demand of the Lord that would surpass the greatness of this gift. Innocence and purity in the presence of God. Beloved, when we have that, we have everything we need. And so may we indeed rejoice as this sinful woman rejoiced, knowing that we have been washed clean. Would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, we all need your forgiveness and your mercy. And yet, Lord, I know that because of the hardness of the human heart, there must be at least one or two or a handful of people in here that do not yet understand their need for your mercy. They think they are good enough, God. I so often think that I am good enough. Lord, would you have mercy on us? Would you, by your Spirit, Lord, be so gracious as to show us the weight of our sin? Show us the the stench and the stain of our sin, Lord. So that we might indeed come to you pleading for mercy and that we might hear your words to us that we are saved. That our sins have been forgiven. And Lord, when that weight is removed, would we indeed be the, the lightest, the freest people on earth, I pray. The ones who can most joyfully serve you, not fearing anything or anyone else because of the forgiveness that we have been granted. Lord, we thank you for the example of this woman. And again, Lord, we pray that you would make us of the same heart and the same mind. Unify us, Lord, in the joy of forgiveness that we might glorify your name on the earth. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.